Welcome to Epidemic Belfast. This week we've got Dr James O'Neill, a collection officer at the Northern Ireland War Memorial in Belfast. Uh, James is going to tell us about gas warfare and preparations in Belfast during the Belfast Blitz of 1941. Uh, welcome, James. Oh, thanks, Ian. Good to be here. Uh, could, could you start off maybe by just explaining the origins of gas warfare in the 20th century? Right. What we're actually looking at is we first really see like chemical weapons have been known through history, but you really start to see them in the First World War when they're first deployed by the Germans against the French on the Western Front and French colonial forces. And there we see the deployment of things like chlorine. Now, this was utterly unknown to troops at the time. And when it was released, they just saw this sort of like green, sickly green fog actually approaching them. And it caused absolute panic in the trenches because obviously they didn't know what it was. Uh, and actually the Germans themselves didn't know how the impact it would have on uh, the troops in front of them. So they weren't prepared for literally a whole section of the front to disintegrate. Um, but very quickly, uh, troops discovered that preparation, you know, the precautions could be taken. And there's these very primitive, sort of for want of a better word, gas masks were, were developed. And literally that's what they looked like. They just looked like uh, gauze masks impregnated with ammonia. Uh, both sides, then, of course, the, the, the British and the French realised the efficacy of the use of chemical weapons. Actually, it was more of a terror weapon than anything else. Um, they estimated that it roughly caused about 1% of the casualties on the Western Front were caused by gas. So compared to the re other weapons that were killing in the millions, um, they seem really not quite as bad, but the, 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 the psychological effect was really devastating. And so... They found out that chlorine wasn't a really wasn't the best gas for because it could actually blow back in their own faces. It would pull and it's quite a heavy gas, so it would actually pull in craters. Uh, so they developed other choking agents like uh, uh, phosgene, which is another choking agent um, that it would affect the lungs. But again, um, all these could be protected um, by gas masks uh, um, uh, and certain preparations. So. They developed other gases, um, both at the end of the war and developed into the post-war period. Uh, and they were deployed. Uh, people always think, oh, well, they were just First World War things. But no, they were deployed both by the British against the Red Russians in 1919. And then it was deployed in colonial arms. Now, we're not, not just talking lethal chemical agents. Also, there were things like tear gases or different series of tear gases were used, uh, but more famously they were used against civilians, say, by the Italians in um, Ethiopia or Abyssinia was was at the time, um, and certainly against unprotected civilians. Um, they were very effective, uh, and also they were very cheap in comparison. So what, what gas weapons were available, and, and why do people fear them so much? Well, you have what I said, like you had chlorine and phosgene, which were choking agents. Uh, you had to breathe them in uh, for them to actually damage the lungs. Uh, but of course, the ingenuity of humans is always uh, pushing the boundaries, uh, especially when it comes to uh, weapons. Uh, and they develop things like uh, mustard agents, mustard gas. And then what the, the, the advantages of mustard gas have over the things like chlorine and phosgene is it, it is a blister agent. Which means you didn't have to breathe it to cause damage. Um, now, mustard gas is invisible. Um, 
uh, because essentially it's a vapor, it's not really a gas, but it could condense onto surfaces and on the skin. Um, and apparently they never said this smells of uh, garlic or onions was the smell, but it could condense on the skin in sort of like a dark oily um, uh, substance. And the most insidious thing about mustard gas is you didn't actually cause immediate damage. You could be exposed to mustard gas and not realize it's not like immediately it would start burning the skin or you'd immediately start choking on it. Uh, mustard gas had this really horrible way of working that it could be actually a matter of hours before you realized that you'd been exposed to mustard gas. It didn't have a, uh, it didn't, there was a later types of gas that came, uh, like arsenical gases that would affect the nose and you would instantly start choking and start um, having pains in the nose uh, and so that you'd know straight away. But you had mustard gas and then they actually, naturally, of course, wanting to improve and something horrible is, uh, as you do, they created a thing called Lewisite, which is like mustard gas on steroids. Um, and it, you, you would know straight away you'd get a choking sensation um, when exposed to it. But again, it was a blister agent as well. And a, a contact with the skin, it would actually create burns and really deep penetrating blisters and were extremely painful. People have been exposed to it, described the pain of it, like feeling like you're on fire. So these are really quite horrible um, uh, agents that were being deployed. Um, also, the worst thing, another thing, as if... Uh, having a burning, uh, blistering agent that could destroy the lungs, destroy the eyes, destroy the skin, is it was also persistent. The difference between uh, things like chlorine gas and phosgene gas is that they would disperse uh, in the open air, whereas what happens with, because it was uh, it was like an oily uh, substance that created the vapor, it could literally lie on the ground. You could get it on your clothes. You could walk it around the place. It could actually be spread, and it would stay on the clothes. And that's why not only would it cause damage to people touching it or affected or breathing it in, but it could lie on the ground liquid for weeks actually, but before it would actually dis fully dissipate. So it was this really appalling contaminant. Um, and why it actually, so like, well, for one thing, it was a terror weapon to troops, but another thing in the post-war period, you had things like HG Wells, nobody's writing books like the, uh, the, the things that come. And part of the, I think part of the elements in that was, there was mentioned about aerial bombings of civilian areas using gas weapons. So really in the public mind, it was definitely something there. Now there was um, great pro proponents of, believe it or not, Churchill was a uh, a big fan of chemical weapons. He actually couldn't see the difference. He, by the way, he wasn't talking about things like mustard gas. He was saying, well, why can't you deploy CS gas or or any of no, the, the more errant gases? Because there's they're more humane and high explosive because they will just incapacitate and not actually kill like high explosive. But certainly when you have things like the Spanish Civil War where you have the aerial bombing of places like Guernica and the effect that aerial bombing had on civilians, then it didn't take too much imagination to think, well, if they're not drunk, if they're dropping high explosives and that's what's happening to Guernica, what would happen if they start dropping gas bombs, if they start dropping mustard gas? or Lewisite or anything like that on civilian areas, the, the potential impact could be just devastating. So yeah, you could imagine how this in the mind, this would very much become something that would dominate thinking. That that all sounds really, really um, horrific. Um, I, just... I guess I was wondering, yeah, well, you, you mentioned Winston Churchill there. So I guess I wondered what the government response was in Britain and Northern Ireland, what would he? Would you say they were generally quite an effective political response or was it lacking in any way? 
Well, certainly when you get up to things like where you have the Munich crisis um, and certainly the war clouds are looming, it becomes very obvious uh, to the government that something has to be done. So they create the air raid precautions and they start distributing gas masks or sorry, respirators, as they were called, um, to the public. And uh, I think around the Munich crisis, there's something like 38 million gas masks were manufactured and distributed to the public. Um and even then, it was seen that there was a worry that government had to be seen to be doing something. So therefore, this was as much to underpin civilian morale and civilian faith that the government is doing something for them, uh, as opposed to the efficacy of it. Because again, even though they're respirators, the kind of gases that could be deployed, respirators would only provide partial protection, like mustard gas. Um, but even in Northern Ireland, as as was often the case, there was a quite laxadaisical, quite slow approach to it. It's a bit like if you look at the Belfast Blitz and the whole run up to it, there was very much a feeling that Belfast wouldn't be bombed, that Britain would be bombed, that they wouldn't come this far, that they wouldn't find Belfast. That actually stretches as far into chemical warfare as well, that they thought, of course, that's not going to happen. So there's a bit of a a lackadaisical approach and it was only very you know as the war started they went hold on a sec here we've got to get you know, something sorted and only then and then you see letters in 1940 going we really must get more respirators out to the public here and uh, they did actually so that eventually everyone did get issued with their, their civilian um, respirators so when everyone was given the respirator I mean that did that provoke fear amongst the public what, what was the public response to the potential for gas attacks i think when they first started getting them i think it was a novelty but then as nothing happens there was a very lack very sort of uh, a reduction in the, the belief in them uh, at some points in 1940-41 there was uh reports coming from northern ireland that there was like a, only a very few people were wearing them in the streets and in fact if some people were seen wearing them in the streets it'd always be a case of like Look at them as wearing their gas mask. Look at them as carrying their gas mask. Um, it, this, of course, being Northern Ireland with its own individual type of uh, issues over um, intercommunal uh, fraction, for want of a better word. Believe it or not, there's a report from 1939 where uh, members of the IRA uh, gathered up civilian gas masks. They were wrapping on doors uh, and gathering them up. They were saying that gathering gas masks or accepting gas masks is somehow accepting that we're part of this run up to this British war. And they actually collected gas masks and burnt them in the street. There was these bonfires of gas masks. I reported this actually in the newspapers in 1939, I think it was early 1939. Uh, and there was even like um, a riot started at one point when police tried to stop this happening. Um, so, yeah. But I think once the war actually started uh, and people realized that mm, perhaps now, yes, my, people may not have um, worn as much as they should have carried them as much as they should have. Um, but certainly whenever war became a reality people may, might have started to realize that uh, maybe i will not go around burning gas masks for kids they, they never actually made it the law that you had to carry a gas mask but for children they did enforce it and things like schools where they had the, the kids had to go in it so therefore they, they had notices to kids or people going to colleges that if you have to if you're going to come to college you're going to come to school then you have to come with your gas mask I find it interesting that you brought in children. Though. Did, did they have a particularly unique experience of gas masks and, and the general situation at the time? Well, you can imagine trying to explain this to kids. Um, 
I know certainly they had their own individual because kids, of course, are different sizes and certainly all the way down to infants. They had different sorts of gas masks. Um, they had, of course, there was the infant one. It was the, it's almost like a large capsule, for want of a better word. We would fit the entire baby in it and then uh, tie up these uh, rubber ties at the base of it and then have a hand-operated pump to pass filtered air into it. They created a second type of children's gas mask. Some people call it a Mickey Mouse gas mask. Personally, I've never actually seen it look anything like Mickey Mouse. Um, but it's sort of like a red, it was a sort of jazzy red and blue colored gas mask to try and make it, make it look less scary to children. Um, I don't know how uh, it, it made kids. Certainly, we have uh, oral history reports. Uh, part of the Northern War Memorial, we have, uh, we go out and take oral history accounts from people that were uh, either served during the war or more and more now it's people that were kids during the war um and some of the re reports regularly mention um uh, these sort of drills that they had um now what you see, you see is the teacher would have them all stand up and believe it or not there were studies done in england this and said well actually what we want to do is institute a sort of regime or regime in schools to create a sort of structure uh, one of the worries was that kids were sort of becoming, believe it or not, they thought the kids were becoming feral. Apparently, no. I think adults complain about kids as something time immemorial. But during the war, they thought that instituting this sort of structure of checking their gas mask, going through drills of how to put them on, uh, would institute a sort of you no know, a, a structure in kids' lives that you no know, that was somewhat missing you know, with all parents. You know, maybe parents that are away on service or parents that are working in uh, factories, that there's less of an adult no input into the kids growing up, so they thought this would add it. Unfortunately, some of the things they did with the kids um, might seem odd to modernise. Uh, um, one of the things was actually putting kids in gas vans and in gas chambers. For one, and literally, that's what they called them. They called them gas chambers, and they would use kids um, to to show them that, that their gas masks work. Um, one of our reports, and it was true. Um, because you can find reports in the newspapers, as they met one of the um, uh, interviewees that we have mentions about he remembers his class all getting lined up, and they had to put their gas masks on, and then they were led into this sort of almost like a panel van, the darkened room, and then they stood there for a while, and then they were led out again, um, and so that's what was what was these things were they um were these gas vans or gas rooms that would they would they would fill them obviously not with mustard gas they would fill it with a uh, CS gas. Uh, and then it would show them how how their uh, gas masks worked, and then they would take them out, and they would clean their gas masks and teach them all how to store it and things like that. As well. Unfortunately, I, I presume I presume all the masks were, were in full working order when they did this. Um, yes, believe it or not, they, there were accounts of kids getting gassed that um, they sometimes they wouldn't put them on correctly. Sometimes they fitted their kids. After all, for goodness' sake, they sometimes they fidgeted with a gas mask. Uh, sometimes you had it with girls that if they had hair clips or long hair, that sometimes would um, compromise the seal. You no, know, it had the seal closely around the face. And that would compromise the seal. And therefore, they would get gas. There were certainly references to children having to be get sent home because they're sitting in class, literally with their eyes and noses streaming because they've been CS gassed. Um, there's also accounts, not here, thankfully, but certainly there's accounts from across the water were um, slightly more strict teachers who perhaps had served in uh, the First World War and perhaps maybe were not quite so sympathetic to the needs or wishes of kids or their parents for that matter. 
and would deliberately uh, open the seal on the gas mask to expose them to the CS gas so that they would find out what the experience of what a gas is. It's, it seems absolutely insane now. They, they, to be honest, they actually do that with service personnel so that they can experience. Personally, I wouldn't recommend it doing to five to eight-year-old kids. Um, but this is the sort of thing that went on um, that was sort of expanded out into things. And kids actually, there's references to the kids absolutely losing it but like the the gas mask the 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 common um uh account sometimes you hear mentioned is that they hated the smell of them though they had this horrible rubbery smell um uh, and they were dark and claustrophobic and you know some kids are just not going to have that at all and there's accounts of some kids getting very upset um and maybe having to get took home because of the whole experience was just too overwhelming so where some might have thought it all a bit of an adventure uh, but yeah, it's it, it, to modernize. It just seems like this this terrible intervention, this terrible idea. Yes, I'm quite glad now that I wasn't a child in in the Belfast Blitz. Anyway, um, but but maybe on that note, what what measures were implemented in, in Belfast other than gassing children? Well, they did actually uh, at the very very start. There's letters in 1939 saying, "Oh no, don't worry about it. It'll be fine." Um, then there's others going, well, perhaps we're going to have to do something about this because they were setting up the area of precautions. You had the warden's posts, but definitely as it started to look that there was a possibility that gas could be deployed. They realized, well, you're going to have to take precautions. Um, One of the things they did was they set up gas cleansing stations. Um, Now, gas cleansing stations, initially they were set up for the ARP wardens themselves that essentially were made up of three parts. You had an undressing station, a showering station, and a dressing station. Uh, although the way they were set up, uh, and then they, these were expanded to purpose-built civilian dressing stations, or dress, cleansing stations. I think there was five expanded to about 15 over the war. And these were built at great expense, by the way. The, um, I think one of the, the most expensive built in Belfast was, I think it was £8,000, which is a tidy sum for something that ultimately never happened. But these stations had to be made of with the undressing station. You would remove your outer garments, not necessarily use well. You had to have an undresser because the whole point is if you're contaminated, you could contaminate yourself with no injure yourself with your contaminated clothes. So you have an undresser that would take those away. Those would be put in sealed bins to be taken away and cleaned. And then you had to go into uh, normally a bleach bath for your feet. Um, the bleach would actually uh, counteract, uh, would neutralize mustard gas. And then you were into the showers. Of course, these showers had to be split into men and women for obvious reasons. Um, and then you had the shower and soap, and that would actually wash off if there was any sort of contaminant or possibly of it. Because um, the whole point it was certainly was something like mustard gas. It's all a matter of time. The quicker you get it off, the less damage it will do. And then we had showered off. And then you go out and you get to the tiling room and then you get dried off and then you go out and there'll be bins with fresh clothes in it. You're in the fresh clothes and then you're out. Now, those were the decontamination stations. Uh, there's smaller decontamination stations attached to first aid posts. These were normally the two or four um, shower heads where you would go through a smaller decontamination. Um, and like I said, the expense of this was huge because not only did you have to have uh, clothes, you had to have boilers to create hot water because it was all hot water um, to wash this stuff off with soap. You had to have fresh clothes. 
Um, and then like everything else, with every other program, there was lots of stuff that came off the side of it. Now it in itself, it in pro its program, it was never seen as the central thing. They didn't say, right, if you get gas, you're all going to here. Believe it or not, they produced a, um, a leaflet uh, and it was called If Hitler Uses Blister Gas. And insanely, actually, the the sort of the front line advice was go home and have a shower or a bath. Well, no, no, the homes here weren't fitted with showers, generally speaking. So go home and have a warm bath. And if you can't get your own home in a warm bath, go to your neighbor's bath. And if you can't go to your neighbor's bath, uh, go to a stranger's bath. Um, and they will, it's, 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 it's the strangest, um, it's very middle class. It almost says, now you have to go in and then you have to strip off your clothes and leave it in their garden, which if they don't have a garden, that's not really helping. Uh, or in their back garden, which strangely in these two up, two down houses in the north and west Belfast, there are no gardens. Um, and then they'd wash you off and then they'd lend you clothes. And it's like, this is the front line. This is your, this is your first line of defense against gas weapons. And only then, if you can't get to um, a house, then you can go to the first aid post with their decontamination and cleansing stations or the purpose-built cleansing stations, which seems, and that's just the drop on gas. This doesn't take account if there's actual high-explosive bombs dropping at the same time. It, 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 it just seems like it's they're just making this stuff up as they go along. The very idea of testing this in real life, thank God it never was. So we've talked quite a lot about um, what could be done to protect against gas attacks and all the planning, I guess. But but if there had been heavy gas attacks on Belfast, do you, do you think all of this would have been effective? Oh, no. I don't think it's the, the very... There was, it became such a complex thing that they, they, they had systems of cleansing, which would only accommodate perhaps 100 people most of the time which would be like a street's worth, maybe. Um, then they had this really system where well of the clothes get left in bins. They have to get laundered so they could have a laundry system. And then they had this system of tags that you recollect your clothes, none of which was stress test at all. Um, and to tell you the truth, what it also boils down to is that this is all about mustard gas. This is all about... Uh, no chemical weapons that they knew at the time or from the First World War, what they didn't realise, um, perhaps it's probably well they didn't mention, is that Germans, uh, Nazi Germany, had developed uh, nerve agents before the war uh, and had started stockpiling, uh, I think it had 12,000 tonnes of a nerve agent called uh, Tabun, and I think they had 100 tonnes of them called Sarin. Now, those people might be more familiar with those. They were used by uh, Saddam Hussein against the Kurds at a place called Halabja in um, 1988 killed over 4,000 people. If they'd been deployed uh, in any way um, in civilian areas, no, none of these precautions had any, uh, would have had any effect at all because nerve agents work by contact with the skin. So therefore, it almost seems like more of a really expensive PR exercise than um, an effective measure against the potential gas warfare against civilians. So how would people be alerted to a gas attack? Believe it or not, they people always think the like our red alerts, you know, like these great big sirens. But for gas, it was really quite low tech. 
the warnings for a gas attack in civilian areas would be a warden would go out with a, a gas rattle. Uh, and so people were to listen out and I cover your ears if you're a proponent, but that's the noise that would be here. And that would be the noise saying they're under gas attack. And then they would have to put their masks on and take shelter until there was the all clear. Now there would be the oh, all clear, you know, the note, the siren that we're all familiar with. That's aerial attack all clear, not gas attack all clear. Gas attack all clear would be signaled by a handbell, by a warden going up and down the street with a handbell. And that's the bell, and that's how they would know that the gas was clear. <laughs> it's all pretty low tech. Well, thank you very much. That 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 was such a fascinating um, account of gas attacks and and what, what could have happened, I guess, in, in Belfast and, and all the preparations in advance um, of that horrifying scenario. Well, thank you very much. No, no problem at all.